we are missing the ethics. Ethics is morals. Morals means how do we shape our belief systems? What truly matters to us? Food has become a commodity and it has lost the sacred. The sacrifice of an animal, I feel, is something, you know, part of this ethical dilemma. I, I like to see, and I do this in, in, in my home, um, in France uh, with my father, we have our, our garden and our, our hens. And when we do the sacrifice of the, of the rooster once a year, it really takes a different sense because I understand sacrifice as when something becomes sacred. And when you do that, once in your life, your nervous system, your body is tuned to be in reverence when you see the life of the animal go and there's nothing. And you relate to death and you relate to life because those two things are two sides of the same thing. And when you understand that what you eat is life, then it is the very question about how do you relate life to your own life within this greater ecosystem of humans and plants and animals and bacteria and fungi, which compose the whole biology of the earth. And, and also to your, to, your, to your own kind of your body and to, to, this, to whatever you put on your plate. And nowadays we're disconnected. We're in the, in the, the highest level of disconnection that we've ever been in human history. Um, and so my hope is that we get back at paying attention to what matters to life. And then food turns changes from being a transaction to being an act of nurture. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to Better, and I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. Today, it is my distinct pleasure to be here with Chef in Arms, brother, and deeply aligned justice advocate, particularly around food, Chef Charles Michel. Now, I put the word chef in front of his name, and he truly is so many more things. He, at heart, in my experience with him working over many things, he's an educator, a space holder. Um, he focuses on ethical eating, community activism, food education, flavor innovation is one that I, would, I can't wait to dig in on, and the connections or the disconnection between us and nature, because we are all nature. Charles, welcome. Love you. So happy you're here. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's such a pleasure and honor to be on this radio show, and, uh, and as always, inspired by your voice and your work, and I'm so excited to be here to dive into this dialogue. Yes, man. And a long time coming. Now, folks, to give you some context, Charles and I met after many forces in both of our lives insisted upon it. And 
you you'll have introductions to people like, oh, you should meet so and so, and the first one lands. You're like, yeah, for sure, and then a second and a third. Well, within a five day span, three of the people I trust most in the world, two of whom are chefs, New York and Los Angeles, were like, you need to meet Charles Michelle. You and Charles need to work together, and the, simultaneously, the same thing was happening on your end. So we finally arranged a call. And I think that initial call was supposed to be 30 minutes and it went for almost three hours. Yeah. And, and that's been our space ever since. We've collaborated on talks. We've collaborated on every platform under the sun during the pandemic to talk about these issues. And because we're so deeply aligned, I think that I'm consistently on the soapbox and your lens is so eloquent and, of course, timely. Climate is a force that is moving directly at us consistently because of our well, because of what we've done. And food is at the center of that. So I've introduced you in all the ways. How do you introduce yourself these days? Hmm. Yeah, I guess food educator is is the umbrella that feels uh, most aligned and most purposeful and at service. Um, the word chef means chief. And right now I'm not chiefing um, a, a kitchen, a team. Uh, I am, I am uh, yeah, I am kind of trying to figure out how to best be of service with this uh, on this mission towards food education and, and food literacy and and just seeing the many ways in which we can leverage food and food narratives towards uh, creating more harmony and more connection uh, at many as in many in many different aspects of our of our lives as human beings right and so to give the people at home some context you graduated from Lyon from Bocou in 2006 and then moved on to do a bunch of michelin stuff so you worked in the restaurants a lot of people became familiar with you as a contestant of the final table uh the very the wildly popular show uh but now you sort of it's like you've returned to your alma mater to teach the things that you've learned globally and reimagine the importance of food so they've added your lens to that so when you teach in such a esteemed place if you will within our fields what is what's the reaction to what you bring? Because it's set, it's heart centered, it's heart led. What's the reaction from this is the exact temperature of a sous vide? Mm. It's like not nah, now. We're talking about now. This is how this impacts the biodiversity of the planet. Yes, um, yeah. It's such a it's such an honor to come back to to where where I came from, and it's also a very classical institute uh, of of the French culinary world. Um, and um, there's something quite quite special is that I had the chance that the director, uh, the academic director, um, basically gave me carte blanche. She just told me, just just do you whatever you want. You have 30 hours with these students. We want you to create two courses: one on culinary leadership and the other one on sensorial exploration. Um, and the, the one on leadership for me was like, okay, what are the tools that I would want to deepen? on uh, what are the tools that I think any person in food needs to be aware of in order to become a leader, a good leader in the, in the food world. And we need leadership in this food world beyond the hierarchical kind of structure of a kitchen. It's not only that type of leadership. It's understanding that cooking has a, a social and an environmental impact mm. and, um, and, and empowering anyone who touches food to see that they have a very important role to play in society. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the framework uh, under which I approach this, this course. And, and the way it comes is that, yeah, um, you know, maybe students see a reality even in, in working in Michelin star restaurants, doing their, um, 
their practices and there's still a lot of racism and sexism and and you know violence in kitchens uh, mm-hmm. of the highest standing and so there is a lot of let's say yeah like a clash between the world we are inheriting that is being transformed and the thoughts that come the intentions that come when you really look at ethics when you really look at how you can do good through food it questions everything about where we come from in, in cooking and really i mean this course i mean for me like the this is i think for anyone who teaches is teaching is the best form uh, i find to consolidate my knowledge to reinforce um, and and go deeper into the knowledge um, that i that i am passionate about and so the more I, I dive into these topics, the more I've understood about the history of gastronomy, uh, about where some of the codes and protocols that still today rule the way we serve food in restaurants. Like the fact that you have a fork uh, on the left side of your plate is something that we inherit from monarchy. And are we questioning that or are we just using a tool because it is a tool? One third of humanity eats with their hands. And from a sensory standpoint, that actually might increase the degrees of connection that you have with your food. Just like a plate in the center of the table where we all eat from, like in Yemen, for example, Yemenite food is one of the most delicious food I've ever tasted in my life. Um, And so, uh, you know, you eat in the center of the plate, it's not the same as if we all have an individual plate served in front of us that caters to what we think we want, right? To our desires, which is not the same thing as this is what we have today, share and you have a plate and everybody can can gather around this this plate of food and so there's something about really questioning um where we come from in food um the roots in in colonialism in in monarchy in um and uh, and industrialism that uh, that i think are essential to question today i love this and of course we come in hot We're going straight for the heart of the matter. And I love this because in most of the conversations we have here, obviously, we talk about the systemic oppressions and issues that we face that are so deeply embedded. And so what I'm hearing you say is people are actually being re-traumatized pretty much daily by the systems of the way we even set our tables. This isn't the way that I... So if you have domestic refugees coming from all over the world to North America, and we're then saying this is the tools of engagement... For me, it feels like a mess hole. You know what I mean? It feels almost military. And we definitely do not eat in that way. And we, of course, both serve in a communal way where everybody shares uh, and everybody engages in the plate and everybody engages in conversation versus a this is mine, I'm completing this task to then move on with the rest of my day, which is the way that capitalism obviously got set up Mm. on this side. You have this time to eat in this break to then get back to work. It is simply fuel so you can continue to run the machine. Yeah, we're not about that transaction. Mm. And so I, one of my favorite quotes of yours, uh, and just has struck me so hard, which is the ethical dilemma of food. And that is, today's food system was one of the greatest ethical dilemmas in the history of humans. We're going to take that and unpack it as we come back. Because when we think about ethical dilemmas, we don't think about food. We think about racism, poverty, misogyny. We think about you know all of these things, the oppression of women continually in 2022. It's insane, but food is at the heart of almost all of these matters, the way it's grown, the way it's consumed, the way it's transported, the way people cannot afford or access it. So when we come back with Charles Michel, 
We're going to unpack some of that. Brother, so great to have you here. You're on Better. I'm Mark Brand. Good luck. Welcome back to Better. We're, of course, here today with my brother in arms, Charles Michel. Not right now, Chief of the Kitchen, but many times Chief of the Kitchen, and undoubtedly will be back to being Chief of the Kitchen at some point. And I also love you reflecting that that's all that word means. There's so much energy around that word and who gets to have it and who, who actually is and who isn't. And simply is, if you're running a brigade, you are. Mm. That's it. That's it and that's all. So as we went to break, again, to recenter your quote, today's food system is one of the greatest ethical dilemmas in the history of humans. That is a gigantic statement. Unpack it for us. Mm. Yeah. So I feel like we, we live in the age of that maybe historically will go down as the, the, the age of waste, the age of excess, the age of, of, of the unconscious at its maximum peak. And I want to believe that this is the maximum peak right now because the fact that, you know, I mean, depending on who you count it uh, from or wh- where you get your data, but um, you know, you could, you, if you if you if you if you take into account the food that is grown to feed animals, that is completely edible for humans, we are producing food to feed twenty billion humans, um, mm. and 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 that that paradox that a lot of people don't have access to healthy nutrition because of access in its many forms or just because of the knowledge, I think that it means that we are basically leveraging the life of this planet and the solar energy that comes uh, from from our closest star in a way that is incredibly inefficient. Mm-hmm. And if we change the paradigm towards being efficient in that, we, decrease, we increase the degrees of efficiency within that, which is basically degrees of connection, then we will have enough for everyone. And that changes the game of how we relate. Um, there is, of course, you know, the, the, this aspect of how much we produce and how much uh, kind of how inefficient that is. Also, the, the food waste paradox, 8% of global carbon emissions being food that we throw to the garbage bin. And when we do not kind of um, separate the, the humid, let's say the, the, the organic matter in our trash bin um, with the dry matter, plastic, cardboard, paper, whatever, we put that together and we put it in our in our trash bin that goes to landfill and produces methane, which is 30 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than, than, than carbon dioxide. So the refrigerator on one hand and the trash bin on the other are how in modern homes we establish the connection to nature. And that is something that is obvious, right? If you think about it, but when you really try and, and, and connect with the realities of everything that has to happen in order for you to get all these nutrients coming in through the supermarket, into your, into your refrigerator, how you process them in your kitchen and how you throw away what success, that is the most important statement that you as an individual are doing in this planet today with the current paradigm that we're living in. Um, and, um, and there's so many different aspects of the food system to unpack, um, but 
you know, I, I'm always inspired by, by, by elders' wisdom. Um, and, and in Colombia, an elder uh, once told me that um, the, the food system, or let's say that the, the garden that you have in the back of your house is the umbilical cord that connects you with the mother, quote unquote, right? The, the, the nature, mother nature. And, and that is, you know, an umbilical cord, meaning that you are getting all your nutrients to, through your, to your belly in a natural form. That's the garden. Today, I feel like we live more like in the matrix where we are literally in a IV perfusion of nutrients that we're getting from our landscapes that we're extracting from the earth. And that is going through, you know, pipes through machine. And, and this is beautiful in a way that, you know, I celebrate the technological advancement that got us to where we are today but we are missing the ethics ethics is morals morals means how do we shape our belief systems what truly matters to us and in that ethical aspect food has become a commodity and it has lost the sacred we have lost the fact that for thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of years our ancestors were had a life around food. It was at the center of our of our lives. It was, you know, the reason why we like a bonfire and, and grilling on, 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 on embers is because we've done it over and over and over again. And we knew what it took to put a knife in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a chicken's throat and take his life. Mm -hmm. The sacrifice of an animal, I feel, is something, you know, part of this ethical dilemma. I, I like to see, and I do this in, in, in my home, um, when I'm in, in France uh, with my father, we have our, our garden, our, our hens. And when we do the sacrifice of the, of the rooster once a year, it really takes a different sense because I understand sacrifice as when something becomes sacred. And when you do that, once in your life, your nervous system, your body is tuned to be in reverence when you see the life of the animal go mm -hmm. and there's nothing. And you relate to death and you relate to life because those two things are two sides of the same coin. And when you understand that what you eat is life, then it is the very question about how do you relate life to your own life within this greater ecosystem of humans and plants and animals and bacteria and fungi, which compose the whole biology of the earth. And, and also to your, to your, to your own kind of your body and to, to this, to whatever you put on your plate. And nowadays we're disconnected. We're in the, in the, the highest level of disconnection that we've ever been in human history. Um, and so my hope is that we get back at paying attention to what matters to life. Mm -hmm. And then food turns, changes from being a transaction to being an act of nurture. The first food that we all had, if we're lucky enough, is our mother's milk. Think about that gesture. Think about, you know, getting all the nutrients, it's the sweetness, the, the umami of, of milk from our mother's breast. That is the most pure image of what food is. And we all started there. We're all equal on that. I feel that that is what's happening today from a machine that feeds to humans that nurture. And it's the nurturing aspect that we establish with other humans and, and to our food is really the nurture that we're going to be having with the life that holds us 
on this planet in order for us to be able to operate cities, to operate our bodies, to operate our homes. All of that comes from the life that surrounds our cities, our homes. And that is, yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, uh, the ultimate point of focus if we want to go through this century in a graceful manner. And, and we have to do it fast, as fast as possible. We need to bring food back at the center of our lives. And I believe in education to allow us to get there. And the benefits are manifold if we really get to it. Beautifully stated from top to bottom. And so what we want to pull out there is a couple of very important things for people listening, which is including agricultural production for the consumption of animals that we then consume but are completely disconnected from. We could buy styrofoam packages in the grocery counter of our steak or our poultry or, or our fish. That food alone can, can altogether could feed 20 billion people. And we say 20 billion calmly. It could be much more, but we're just like, oh, that's the easy, low-hanging fruit number. Like, it's definitely 20 billion. It's probably way more. And so as we think about our exponential increases of population from 4 billion in the 80s to 8 billion now in this short amount of time, knowing that we have starvation on such a giant global scale, 25,000 people a day perish from something within the food system, and most of it is a lack of being able to access it. If this isn't the greatest thing that we're centering, and this is why Charles and I work the way we work, if this isn't the talk, and of course, I've been working in waste food very diligently for a long time, and look how delicious this can be. Look how easy this is. And when we come back, we are going to talk about waste food because one of my first interactions with Charles as well was seeing him and his partner on Final Table center waste food on a dish and gamble the competition to make a statement. That's what advocacy looks like in on television. That's what it looks like is saying, hey, this is too important not to talk about on this platform. And yes, I'm willing to risk my competitive edge to center it. So I appreciate you, brother. That entire thing is a lesson in of itself that we just had. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about that, about using your voice and about waste. You're on better. I'm your host, Mark Brand, and we're with my brother, Charles Bishop. back on better with Charles Michelle. And I'm still reeling from the last segment. <laughs> Every time and you and I get a chance to speak together, and it's been often, I walk away learning something. And what the best part about it is for me is it's things that I believe I know that I already have expertise in, but you add so much color. So if I'm looking at the rigidity and often as an advocate, but also as, a, as an operator, right? I operate and we're in the lines if we have to make things profitable so we can continue to help people and what that looks like. Sometimes I lose my own connection to my heart center. And so our conversations always bring me back into that space and I'm, I'm very grateful for them. So as we were leaving, I think, you know, I said you use the platform in the final table, but I misspoke. You competed on that show specifically to do that. Like you said, I can get to this platform based on my skill sets, my visibility, and you leveraged all of those things knowing that you could bring a great opportunity to spread a positive message about the problems facing the global food systems to that platform. 
So can mm-hmm. you tell us a little bit about that and particularly around the food waste so we can unpack that a little for folks at home? Absolutely. Um, so let me give an example, right? Like we, like we invest millions, if not billions, into research to try to figure out how to improve the yields of a particular crop 10%, 5%, 15%, if it's like, you know, breakthrough technology, to try and produce more food out of the same plot of land. Take cauliflower or artichoke. Artichoke, I used to talk a lot about cauliflower or broccoli. Now I love talking about the artichoke. So you get the artichoke plant. If you have the chance of seeing one in your life, it is, you know, like big, you know, almost like a meter wide. Um, there might be, what, about 10 kilos, 20 pounds of, of, of mass of, the, of this plant without taking into account the kind of the roots. And uh, just outside of the earth is about, 10 kilos, 20 pounds. Um, and then in the cycle of this plant, you get three, four, five, six, maybe artichokes, flowers. And then artichokes, as you may know, if you're a bit into food, you know that you lose a lot, right? You have to take out the leaves, you take out the stem. And then what? You get maybe a pound, no, not even half. Yeah, well, maybe a pound, half a kilo of edible substance from this plant that takes about half a square meter on the soil, right? Or maybe a bit more. Now, this is where the shift happens, is let's look at that plant again and wonder, is the heart of the flower the only thing that I can eat? And the Mm. answer is no. The answer is that there is so much more food happening here that is not even considered food. So when we say, like, we're growing food enough to feed 20 billion, it's probably much more, I agree with you, Mark, because we're not taking into account a lot of different parts of vegetables that are not even considered food, not even considered a resource, not given any value apart from going to compost to amend soil. Mm. And so if you take, again, the artichoke, and this is something I learned by practicing with my father in the garden, in winter, the, because it gets really cold, the plant sends glucose sugars into the leaves and the stalks of the leaves of, of the artichoke. And so you take one leaf of artichoke, which may weigh like it's big, it's a big leaf, take <laughs> out the, 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 the outer part and just keep the, the stalk. And then that you boil it a couple times to get rid of the excess bitterness. And it's super sweet. It has a lot of fiber and it's just as delicious as the heart. And so you realize that from a plant that you thought you had a 5% yield of edible stuff, you get maybe 30 or 40%. That's multiplying by eight the amount of food that you can get from one crop. So let's go back to waste. And let's go think about like not only what we're wasting of what we're producing, but what we're not seeing as a resource because it's somehow not part of our awareness, somehow not part of the economy. Somehow a tree is worth more dead than alive in the economy that we live in. And the same relationship of like, just understanding and there's magical miracles that happen every single day with these plants that we have you know made evolve to satisfy our needs but there's so much more that with a tiny bit of of practice and it and and a lot of patience and, and just paying attention to the right things we can uncover that there's so much more food in nature than we are able to understand mm-hmm. uh, and and of course there's spaces there for innovating also in food systems um, you know the leaves of the broccoli, the stalks of the of the of the cauliflower, um, letting cauliflower actually go to flower, 
and then commercializing the little buds, just like so much more. And then we're just trying to standardize things and to make them normal and to make them fit within an economy. And that is, I feel that the disconnection from the soul of food and the soul of nature, the soul of nature that becomes our soul when our bodies absorb the energy and the nutrients from these, from these foods. And it's really, you know, uh, an experiencing consciousness as well. Like, how are you, how do you think your body is being conscious and your mind is conscious of the present right now? It's because you're being powered by all the food, ultimately plants that absorb sunlight. So you are, you know, Carl Sagan used to say, like you, you know, you, you, your body's made of stardust. Yes. And your mind is powered by sunlight. And right. that is a fact. And yeah. what does that mean? It means a lot of things. A hundred percent. So Carl Sagan used to say it, and our friend Michelle Thaler proves it in a talk. Like you are genuinely made of stardust, powered by the energy of a star, photosynthesized through the plants that we eat. Period. Exactly. This isn't the romantic. This isn't this is not an in, you know inspirational meme. This is literally how we work, and we've been taught through consumption and commercialization of what is a right, what is a birthright to lose our curiosity to simply follow the powers and the regions that be. And I, so I was in Thailand just before the pandemic hit, working at a conference, Sustainable Brands, and I was working on also feeding the elderly. So with the government agency on the side, like what does it look like to respect people who are in care facilities? Because they respect their elders so much, but what does it look like to consciously provide food? And so we had a cooking competition around it. And in sourcing for that competition, I was brought to a biodynamic farm, fourth generation, and walked around with a gentleman who spoke no English and I spoke none either, just him and his son. And he was pulling leaves off trees and plants and feeding them to me. Charles, I've been doing this a long time. There wasn't a single thing on any of those trees or plants that I'd ever experienced or tasted before in two hours of walking the farm. I went to the market expecting to see the things that I knew of Thailand as exports, tiger prawns that were you know, three inches long, quite the opposite. They were 20 inches long. I saw horseshoe clams that were incredible. Like I saw so many different things that I had, because of my own need for comfort, in product had stopped also my own curiosity of searching, right? And so it's, I can be comfortable in my job knowing that these 75 ingredients are what I lean into, but what does it look like to be consistently expansive in our understanding of true generational wisdom and true indigeneity and the wisdom that comes from it? So this is a point of focus for both of us. And I love teaching people how to eat things they throw in the garbage, and so we have to start at the very simple things. Like you said, broccoli stems. I want folks to understand that you can just dice these up and roast them off and they were almost more flavorful at points. Like, why, why aren't we taught this? Well, we aren't taught this because it doesn't earn. Yeah, It doesn't earn. And so I love you sharing all of that. Yeah, you know, coming back to, to the final table, I think there's, you know, it's easy to put 20 grams of caviar on a dish. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's going to make it look so fancy and so beautiful. And this is part of what people expect when they think about, about, about great food, but, but truly like really extracting the delicious essence of a humble ingredient probably carries more courage, more wisdom. And, and it's just like, you know, seeing the sacred in the mundane, seeing, seeing the beauty in the simple. And I think that is almost, you know, akin to magic. Uh, more so than just opening something expensive and putting it on top. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to say shots fired, but not even. That's so much fun. And uh, unpacking this stuff, where's your true genius? The true creativity is in educating someone that they didn't, like things they didn't understand and opening up the whole realm of possibility for them. It is not genius to scoop out a product that everybody's going to find delicious because we know that that's just it. So I want to go into the next break with a quote of yours that I also love. And we'll talk about some more of this when we come back, which is, children must be encouraged to ask profound questions. Maybe modern time crisis are rooted in education that systematically suppresses imagination and freedom of thought. That is a summation of what we just talked about. Our imagination and our freedom is being suppressed. And it starts with food. We do it three times a day if we're incredibly lucky. You're on better. I'm with my brother, Charles Michelle, and we'll be right back. back to the final segment which I'm, I'm feeling already a little melancholy about like no we have so much more to talk about so if you're on the radio we are going to keep talking and that'll be on the podcast wherever it is that you listen to better uh, and we're going to keep going because we've got a lot more to talk about but if you are on the radio in this particular segment i want us to dive back into and let me recenter the quote children must be encouraged to ask profound questions stop Maybe modern time crisis are rooted in education that systematically suppresses imagination and freedom of thought. I don't think that's a maybe. We know. We're learning all the wrong things in very little doses. And social media is influencing the rest of the way that we see the world. So talk about encouraging children to ask profound questions and what that means for you. Hmm. I was very lucky to 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 grow up um, surrounded with with love and support of, of father and mother, which is I know already a massive privilege. Um, but one thing that I am particularly grateful for is my dad taking me to the woods on an adventure to find the prince of the forest. And systematically, we would just enter any forest, and he would be like, "Okay, let's go find the prince of the forest." And I was like, "Yes, of course." My eyes, my my body was kind of uplifted by the mission of finding the prince of the forest. And and every single time was a thrill. And, you know, as an adult today, I understand that. And my father was, you know, incredibly uh, wise in making me basically look for the tallest and largest tree of the forest, calling it a prince, giving it an identity, giving it a soul, right, by the very quest. And so the tree had much more meaning than just being a tree. I understood from a very young age that this was, you know, an entity to be revered, to be respected. And just that, and that was a game we used to play. So easy. Imagine taking 20 kids and telling them, okay, let's go find the Prince of the Forest. As long as you are in a contained space and you have a few adults to take care, you can just plant the seed of, of the forest having being some in some way conscious and being and, and deserving respect and deserving care and something that you can create a mutual a mutually beneficial relationship with and i feel that that's very kind of deeply inherent to the human spirit and kids as we know are much more open to the possibilities 
little by little, we get trained out of our imagination, of our creativity. Why? Because we need to feed in little boxes in order to basically be tools for an economy in the way it works. But this is not how we were, quote unquote, designed by evolution, because there is a design and, uh, and it's a biological design. Pleasure is one of the most intelligent tricks of, of, life, of life. And we humans have evolved with pleasure at the core, meaning that we will, like pleasure is an indicator of, of evolutionary success. We are hacking this in modern times to basically create good consumers and create a, 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 a yeah, a population that consumes one product over another. And so the, the idea here being that food and fire in particular are two of the most essential traits of humans as, you know, as a living species. Um, you know, gazelles run fast. We humans, we captured fire. Uh, from the sky, literally, like like in Prometheus' um, uh, myth, right? Like the, we stole fire from the gods, and that allowed us to extract more, to be more efficient at extracting the nutrients in our landscapes. And hence, we are humans because we cook, because we have this control of fire. Imagine the amount of power that you would give to a human being if you teach them the basics from five to fifteen years old of how to be in control of that power, which is the power of fire, something to a force to be reckoned with, uh, to be to revere, to respect, um, and, and nature, which is basically the abundance of nature. If you have those two, you can do anything. You can survive. You can be of service to others. Literally. You can speak any language. You can communicate with any single human being on earth because food is a language. Imagine how much would change in, in, in young kids' bodies and minds and hearts if we were told to relate to food. And right now there is 0.1 on the curricula, right? Like 0.1% of the curricula is about food or around food. And that should be much bigger. And that may have like a domino effect on, on, on creating more intelligent consumers, um, on, on also humans that are aware of their body mechanisms and their health, right? It's the most potent preventative health. So anyways, I could go on for hours, but I know you have a lot to say ar around that also, uh, Mark, and love to hear what, what your thoughts are to that question. Yes, that's my summation. My summation is yes. I mean, we are, uh, you know, let's, let's just bring in, you know what my lens is on this, which is when you remove the teachings of power, of independence, you create codependence and mm -hmm. interdependence on the systems that already exist. So by not teaching anything in the curriculum about the true history of the places we come from, we literally teach fairy tales mm -hmm. in which the colonial dominant is the hero versus the genocidal pressure. So that's, we, learn, we learn lies as soon as we can learn. And then we also decide that the things that are singularly most important in our life, emotional regulation, understanding how to communicate through friction and hold space and to regulate that, part of the tools of that are proper nutrients, nourishment, and hydration. We don't teach any of that. Why would we? 
Mm. right? We feed kids juice boxes and processed foods and then try to educate them on things that are irrelevant. <laughs> and that's our system. That's the system. And then we hope to change the world in a positive manner by continuing to oppress peoples. And so I've worked in the system itself and everywhere from the San Francisco Unified School District's food board and helping to reimagine food to local education add-ons. We call them add-ons like bolted on education around agriculture and food to kids as, as young as five or six. And we create programs ourselves, of course, the Better Life Foundation. And watching kids be respected, loved, and revered for their intellect and inherent skill is everything. Mm. Watching them aliven and awaken into what they've already known around fire, around food, around how it makes them feel, they make excellent decisions given the tools. Now, if an entire society starts making excellent decisions and no longer has to rely on systems that rely on them, basically as fodder, then what happens? And so, of course, that's in my reflection of all the beautiful things you've said today so far, that really truly is the center point of we come at this with love, we come at it with peace, but at some point we have to be able to tell the truth. And the truth is that the food that we're being fed is poisonous for our body and has created the biggest health and mental health crisis on the planet because of the way that we're being forced to purchase and eat. And it must change. And it's so simple, Charles, and we know this. So, folks, I, with that, I'm going to say thank you to our radio audience. Uh, I love and appreciate your time so very much every week. It has been an honor to share my friend Charles Michelle with you. Uh, you can tell how impassioned I get. If you could feel the flow of my energy from the beginning until now, it's very early in the morning. Charles is joining us from Tel Aviv. We are going to continue this conversation right now on the podcast. So if you want to switch over your dial and boot up where it is that you consume, that's where we're going to be. If you're leaving us here on the radio, please thank my guest, Charles Michelle. Charles, what an honor. What a pleasure. So if you're with us on the pod, we are straight here. I just said a whole bunch of things that I want to give Charles an opportunity to dig right in and respond to. My man, how did that land for you? An image landed. Um, you know, as I love, I love how conversation actually is such an important tool to build the scaffolding of what we believe in and kind of choose the best path forward. You know, on a daily basis, it's mm. such a powerful the power of the word. Right, it all starts with the word. And so, as we're 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 in this dialogue, you, you, the last thing you said on on radio show, I I saw how just how deep. Um, you know, basically the food systems, the food, humanity's relationship to reality has been hijacked by the modern food system. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to put a little asterisk on this. I'm going to come back to it. Think about the matrix, right? Um, this great movie and narrative. I feel like when you look at humanity from the lens of the food system, we are already on the matrix. We're literally mm -hmm. like having these IV, this, this, these tubes and we're connected, right? Here's the corner store. Here's the fast food chain. Here's the supermarket. Here's, you know, the, the cardboard juice or milk in the, in the, at school, right? Like you just get your fixes. And because that is taken for granted, 
in terms of nutritional basics, right? Often overtly on the calories, on the fats, on the sugars, on the salts, which is basically what gets us hooked and addicted to these things and coming back to them because it is very much a biological mechanism of our bodies uh, that learned for thousands of years, millions of years to actually go to the things that create, that have this, this richness. Our sensory systems are hacked in order to go to these things. They are given to us on a platter at every corner. And then we forget how to question. So we are fed the blue pill on a daily basis since school. So what does it mean to wake up in the, within this paradigm? What does it mean to actually be like, oh, I want to wake up from this matrix and actually you go to the real reality. You have the courage to do so. Um, you have the ability to do so. Not all of, not all of us can, can, can say like, oh yeah, let's check out from this. And that's not what I'm saying because that would require so much, um, you know, complex effort. Now, I do believe that bringing food education to the table can have like a, 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 the power to affect the system in a very interesting way. It's like a Trojan horse, right? Um, and and what I'm seeing is that the more we connect to the truth of life through food, so learning about physics, chemistry, geography, history, all, all of those things you could do, making whipping up a mayonnaise and making an emulsion, right? You can talk about mm -hmm. history, geography, physics, and, and maths and, and, and chemistry, right? And so you can do that, and then you absorb the knowledge, right? You put it inside your body, and then you are empowered because then you have the choice, because you have the privilege of knowledge and hopefully wisdom through great teachers that can that can give you this information in a way that feeds your your body much more than your just just your body and i feel that that's a soft revolution brewing there i really believe that we need to or at least this is what i choose to focus on soft revolution not violent revolution not overturning the current system but rather working at a distance from it but in good relationship with it in a way that just changes the paradigm because food is nature and food is us and food is the future. And there is no sustainable future, whatever you understand by sustainable, if we do not put food front and center. It's the only thing that touches on all, you know, sustainable development goals. And I know you're, you know, we're in this, we're in this, um, in this, in this, in this, in this journey together, uh, Mark. Um, and I'm so inspired by how you show up as well in, in the world with your words and, and actions uh, more than just the words, uh, unlike unlike many. So, yeah, that's where I, I went. Appreciate you, man. <laughs> I appreciate you. I'm there. I'm here for all of it. The, I think the most fun that I have in when you and I converse in particular is sometimes when I'm holding space, I have to find and pull some threads. But you and I are so intrinsically interwoven in our <laughs> beliefs and our work that everything is worthy of my time and our time in discussion for me. If that makes sense, it's like mm. we can we could genuinely talk for hours and hours and we have. And I think what I try to always, aside from gleaning such beautiful insights and landing them in my full body, right, in an integral way, in an integral way to then go forth and use them um, is so important. And so I'm hoping that everybody who's listening, I don't have to hope. I know that everybody who's listening is taking away some such major pieces in the way of the reframe, but I want 
this one thing to really land for us if we haven't landed it already, which is look behind the curtain. Look behind the curtain. There's a beautiful book written by our friend Charles Eisenstein, and it's got a bit of a woo-woo name, which is, it's called The Yoga of Eating. And I love, because he's so tongue-in-cheek as well in his delivery and the way that he holds space in it. Essentially what he says is, you know, to paraphrase a 240-something page book in one sentence is, your body will tell you what's good for it and what isn't. You just have to make the time to listen. And so after trying lots and lots of diets, which is quite an insane concept in of itself, that one thing works for every body type, right? That's so, it's so crazy. And there are parts, of course, caloric deficit. And when you starve your body, you will lose weight, sure. But in this other place of nourishment and how our body reacts, I'm sure Charles and I could tell you right in this moment what our top five foods are that make us feel our brightest, our most centered, our calmest, our most peaceful. And it will rotate in your lifetime. But I think as you eat as individuals, this is the first part of your journey into discovering it's all a bit of a big fib (laughs) that this is what we should consume for breakfast is a bowl of sugared puffed X with a gigantic half liter of dairy. You know, for some, cool. But if I was to consume that, my day is over. <laughs> my day is literally over. I can't, I can't process that. That's not something my, my blood sugar spikes, my brain spirals. I go into full-blown spin. Yeah. I have to start in a different way. And I only know that, not based on going to any experts or any naturopaths or anything else that my privilege has afforded me. I know it because I trialed and errored it. Hmm. This is how I feel. And in different parts of my life, that has worked for me. And I know that you, Charles, adhere to a very specific diet. Um, and in the way that you share that diet is the way that you share everything is, is with this lens of love and reverence for the land. And I saw it the most during the pandemic in the conversations with your father. And so I want to take all of that conversation and just slide a little bit to the side to get a little more into you, you. Hmm. which I know advocate you and I appreciate teacher you and chef you and all of the yous that you've shared with us so far today. But you and I had some very personal conversations during the pandemic of the reestablishment of a connection with your family Hmm. and that time spent. Would you mind sharing with our audience Hmm. how that came to be and what it meant to you and what it continues to mean to you? Yeah. Thank you, Mark, for that. Um, And I will, and I will share very openly also, um, Hmm. I, my experience has been that in order to find my center, and I am still finding it, it's a process, a journey, not a destination. Healing my relationship with my father and my mother is one of the most important tools I've found. And, and, that, and I feel that this is something that comes back, you know, over and over again. Like every single human being has either some for as some form of trauma with either their father or their mother and as long as we keep on fighting that or disconnecting from that and we do not make peace with that we do not clean that relationship and 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 you know and really love that relationship for what it is with the good and the bad we are hindering ourselves from achieving our full potential this is my story with my father I I had, you know, bits of 
um, of trauma that, that that were left from from childhood. Um, when when he got angry, when when uh, when he wasn't present at home, things like that. And for a long time, I you know loved my father, but it was really hard to really be in harmony with him. And I had the gift of spending the pandemic next to him um, and realized just how valuable his wisdom was. And, and I'm still very much today learning, you know, by listening, by observing my emotions when I want to react to something he says or how, or how he says it, right? Because I have all, all, all us children, sons and daughters, we always have something to say about how our parents do things, right? It's, it's, it's natural. And sometimes that comes with, with anger or with some kind of aggression. And so I've understood a lot about my emotions by connecting with my father. And so the healing modality, so to speak, for my father's relationship and, and with, I mean, our relationship um, was to be in the garden, was to, for me, someone who works in food, who I have talked and I feel I don't feel necessarily proud of this, but I've talked about the future of food and agriculture without ever putting my hands in the soil. Mm-hmm. And, and I understood just how far I was from true wisdom. I was just maybe repeating something I heard or something that felt right. But when I put my hands in the soil and I saw the miracle of life unfold in front of my eyes for a whole season, right, from putting the seed in, in the soil to harvesting the seeds for the next season and everything in between that represents food, harmony, pleasure, uh, all kinds of delicious and, and, and joyful things to do around, around a garden, that truly changed my, I, almost the levels of integrity that I have with what I speak. And that is, mm. goes very deep. It goes very deep. And uh, this year, uh, you know, it's, it's, so it's May and we started uh, a month ago planting all the seeds that we will harvest. And this includes, you know, my dad sometimes smokes uh, tobacco and now we're, we're growing our own tobacco. Um, right. So things like that, that are like, oh, wow, like there's, and there's so much to learn about growing and especially the drying process of the tobacco is something that I'm learning about. Uh, and I failed my first, my first, my first harvest. So it's interesting to understand um, how much there is to learn from relating to plants with together with other human beings and the amount of generational exchange, the amount of ancient intuition that is awakened, that awakens when you are in relationship to soil, to the elements. Um, and uh, that has been that has been my 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 real university. I've done a few kind of studies, but this is the the university of life itself. And um, and I just feel like you know it's, it should be a birthright to have access to a little corner of land where we can we can explore this 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 wisdom. One last thing I'll say is actually my dad criticizes a little bit. I mean, he is of course very proud of seeing me kind of travel and and all that, but and 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 speak on stages in different continents, etc. But he says, you know, you're always on the go. The back of my garden has the same amount of wonders than the other side of the world. Mm. He told me this four years ago, four or five years ago. And it really, and, and the more time goes, the more I realize he was right. There is as many wonders in a little 
plot of land where we grow our artichokes than going to Japan, you know? And so that's something that, that, that is always with me. Beautiful. And thank you for sharing so openly. So there's a couple of lessons that I want to pull out there. And one is we can know in our reptilian brain a lot of things in part. And I think where the real danger comes is advocates who are educated through text, through speech, through deep study, often feel threatened by advocates who are in the front line. Mm. And our true weaponry comes from being both, right? So mm. we talk about qualitative and quantitative all the time. And one of the biggest tensions between the entire charitable world and nonprofit world, which has got all of its merits and all of its demons and all of those things is, what do you do? How often? For how many? And the person who's doing the work says, why the fuck does that matter? I am changing people's lives. You're not. Write the check. And I've watched it unfold in front of me my entire like, life around this field. And those two tensions are based around I don't respect you because you don't put your hands in the dirt. I don't respect you because you won't give me the things that I'm classically trained to need to then be able to sell this across. You don't honor that my system and my financials require key performance indicators. And I don't honor that you refuse to be in the front lines and understand what it is that I do. Why you and I create the work and the events and things that we do is so that those two worlds can meet with none of that conversation and simply either be in food together or be in the dirt together and take care of each other and be in service because all the rest of that stuff just peels away. Hmm. So for you to say, I, I have been on stages talking about this before I ever put my hands in the dirt is so fucking important. And then I put my hands in the dirt and realize the wonder and the importance of my mycelial connection. The electricity that courses through your body by touching the microorganisms in the dirt is everything. It's not something, it's everything. I've watched people turn the corner from being hardcore opiate addicts into just caring so deeply for a patch of arugula. Like, like it was their own life because they know it is. There's a light bulb that goes off. It's like, oh, this is me and I am this. And so watching that journey with you has been so exciting for me. My family on my dad's side comes from generational farms. My dad grew up on a farm. My grandmother taught me how to can and jam and everything before I had a concept of a lot of things. She had me picking raspberries in their backyard, very tiny backyard in Edmonton and crab apples and producing all of these things next to her with just joy and wonder. And she used to make fun of me because I would have a basket and pick the raspberries and it'd be two for me, one for the basket, two for me, one for the you know, And just stuffing them in my face, of course, with my fat little cheeks, like doing the thing because food was it. It's always been it. And so mm. any chance that we can share our wonder of it and, you know, we, we have the other thing of people getting their feet in the sand or in the ocean and they're like, I've never felt more grounded. I'm like, yes, because it's you. You are feeling truth. And so making the connection to when you put something in your mouth 
It has to come from that same truth. It has to. And so we talk about eating whole foods or, or you know, really taking care when we create something with dignity and integrity. You know, when I was teaching people to make stocks or soups during the pandemic and the notes that I got from people being like, this cost me like nothing. This was going to be garbage. And it's so delicious. How? I'm like, don't ask me how you made it. <laughs> you did it. Do it again. And just that, again, going back to your fire and literacy and the, and the understanding of the power of it. It's all interconnected, my brother. And I just, I, I so appreciate you sharing with this audience. And speaking of sharing with audiences, I am a very lucky Patreon subscriber of yours. And so I think a, a lot of people, a lot of musician friends of mine, DJ friends of mine, chef friends of mine leaned into this field. But the community resources that you share on there are exactly all the stuff we talked about. So folks, if you want to do a walk in the garden cooking class with Charles or an advanced lesson on everything from prepping fish to vegetables, there's also an entire community of people having this conversation in real time all the time, some of which have become friends of mine. And then there's one-on-one -on -one mentorship with Charles himself. I heavily, I'm going to share this link and I encourage this, and this is not a fucking sales pitch. This is a, this community matters and you can learn so much more there. Um, and Charles has made it incredibly affordable so everybody mm -hmm. can access it. Uh, you definitely have to go over and, and check that out. Um, we've got a few more minutes here. And I want to just open the floor, man. What do you want to leave us with, aside from all the wisdom you already have? <laughs> um, let's see. So many paths, so many roads. Um, I just feel like the light of nature will guide us home um, it's it's embedded in everything it's embedded in in what we breathe uh, literally every single breath that we take is connection to the oceans and the phytoplankton that absorb sunlight and turn it into oxygen and the forests right and, and that is a truth it's an it's an essential truth of being alive but yet we do not pay attention to it because we take it from granted and just like Food and air take so many things for granted. Being alive on this planet is a freaking miracle. If you look at the facts, if you look at the complexity and the exquisite beauty in every single thing, the more you look into it, either with a telescope or a microscope, and you will find more awe, more amazement at how all this thing came together so we can basically enjoy life and eat and drink and celebrate and be with our parents and love and all of these things that make a life worth living that we sometimes feel, I mean, I feel like we are deconditioned from living a full spectrum human experience because of the lack of wonder in our education. And, um, and I feel kind of, you know, uplifted, to know that you know it's it's not just you and me. There's an army of people out there who are trying to to do this, and this is what uh, you know. Thank you for you know shining a light on on, on the patient community. Like one thing I will say about that is that I feel that when you really look at things also very closely and how they work and the injustices embedded within the system, you realize that it's that you almost wish you didn't know, because then you cannot look at things again in the same way and that is alienating sometimes it's it's very lonely 
because the world works in a way and oh my god yeah plastic and turtles you know whatever it is right and then you go to supermarket or to this is plastic everywhere and you're like powerless and that's a lonely place to be but when you realize there are so many people who feel the exact same thing at least we can tap each other on the back and be like hey we're in this together like let's do little things small things mm-hmm you know, possible things, but let's also have our vision together again with these telescopes and microscopes. Let's have a vision on on, on the North Star. And to me, the North Star is bringing sacred back to food, bringing sacred back to nature. Whatever sacred means to you, whatever you believe in, the point is that having reverence. When we kill an animal, we are sacrificing it. We are turning it into something sacred. When it's a machine that's doing it for you, as it happens in most cases, with most of the animals that you've eaten in your life, and they're not, you know, treated with respect, and they're not, the life is not taken with respect and reverence, then you are disconnecting yourself from the opportunity to be in awe and amazement and in reverence with the life that we're given to to, to experience on this planet, uh, in this in this very very particular turning point in the history of our planet and our and our and our, and our species. Um, so. I just, yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful because, because, because that way it feels better to live. Um, and I choose, I choose hope because it just feels better. And if I feel better, everything's around me will probably feel better as well. And, and that way we create, you know, virtuous spirals up. All of that is true. And so just summarizing the tension that's faced there. As you begin or embark on any journey, and for some people listening, this might be your kickoff. This might be your moment. This might be your sign of, I want to investigate why I'm tired, why I'm depressed, why I feel all of these things. And it starts with what we put into our first brain, our belly, and how it interacts with our second brain, our mind. And it changes the way you speak to yourself. You understand yourself. You start to move in integrity more, and integrity for yourself, Right, We always say you got to love yourself first and we have all these other euphemisms and ways and analogies that we use, but ultimately that is through action. So when we walk in integrity and our words match our actions, so we say, I love myself, therefore I need to care for myself. And when you do it through food, through exercise, through rest, through reflection, prayer, or meditation, all the same thing to me, all of those are commitments to a higher self. And so when you're feeling alienated, you need to call forth a community. And so I physically built mine because it's the only way I know how. I'm a little, a little heavy-handed, if you will. So I built physical and I build physical spaces and then I yell a lot about community to bring them in and I create things that do that. And then there's other ways that that's created, whether it's digitally or within communities that convene monthly, yearly. But all of it is so incredibly important to not feeling alone because what we know and you've heard me say this often, is isolation is the single biggest cause of addiction and instability. Oh, yeah. And that addiction can be to food, it can be to drugs, it can be to sex, it can be to alcohol, it can be to any of those things because we don't feel whole. And that wholeness starts with ourselves. So I wanted to say that to you because I feel like it, it weaves together what you're saying about then creating the energy of hope. I am radically hopeful. And I know way too much. I've seen too much. And yet I still operate in a place of we're going to get there because we are. 
And I think it's important to also set context for where we were 40 years ago in our consumption and our just blindness to absolutely everything. Like absolutely everything. We're the greatest. We're the best. We're the this. We're the that. And I talk from a Western lens in this one. And now we're like, yo, we're messing it all up. And we're active. When something of injustice happens, people are in the street. Mm. Right? When we are looking at systems and we drive through any neighborhood from Austin, Texas to Lille, I can buy fresh, non-modified, organic produce pretty much anywhere now. And from the people who provide it and produce it, that's revolutionary. These are revolutionary acts and they're exponentially increasing because people know they also need to eat less. This bunch of spinach doesn't feel so expensive if I don't have to eat 10 plates of it. <laughs> exactly. So my man, I just, I'm always inspired by you. I thank you so much for your time today, folks. All the links to Charles will be on my socials and the better socials. Uh, this is to be continued, of course, in our lives as they continue to to meet and match, whether that be in Bogota next or wherever it may be. It will definitely be here on the show again. Um, and I love you and I appreciate you. Love you so much and admire, appreciate your work and, and super grateful for the attention of everyone listening. Yeah, same. And folks, you've been on better. Yet another week peels away from us. Again, Chef Charles Michel, educator Charles Michel, sentient being Charles Michel uh, has gifted us with his time and his conversation. I couldn't be more grateful. I can't wait to see you here again next week. Stay safe out there. Another incredible episode in the can. And I simultaneously feel so invigorated and hopeful and also just resoundingly aware. We're incredibly skilled at compartmentalization, incredibly skilled at compartmentalization. When something happens in a news cycle, we are so upset for a solid 48 hours because something else is going to happen. And that cycle is just consistently destabilizing us. It doesn't give us a chance to recover. It doesn't give us a chance to recenter. So we are living our lives in mental triage because there feels like there's no safety. All we've ever tried to do as beings is create safety for each other, for ourselves. As we get more and more complex and we are in the growing pains of our own intellect, we're in the growing pains of our own understandings. We haven't built the tools that go along with the growth of that intellect. Our capacity grows to consume information, yet we don't know how to process it in any way. So we lean harder into the good feelings of the things that bring those to us. The serotonin and dopamine rushes. Everything becomes disposable and quick transactional to get those hits. Our interpersonal relationships, our habits with purchasing and spending, the way that we consume with a focus on high sugars and high fats to get those beautiful feelings that aren't real. They're not real. A chemical reaction in your body is not indicative of peace. It's not indicative of real happiness or joy. And that's why depression and suicide are at all 
time highs. Because any of the things that we're using to satiate or cure our problems are false. My conversation with Charles uncovers a look behind the curtain, as I say in the interview, what's happening to us. Now, I want to go back to Dr. Gabor Mate saying, I don't think there's a big evil force and a plan moving in synchronicity with like a group like an Illuminati. I agree. But I imagine there's an entire NBA of teams that are doing that. From food production to the continued labor force push to keep people in a place where they can't get rest or a break to discern what's best for their lives. We chew entire generations of people up and spit them out to create commodities and wealth. That can't be our way. It wasn't our way. And as we get a deeper lens, as Charles says, telescopic or microscopic, the microscopic shows us just how much we can control the wellness of our beings. The telescopic takes us backwards and forwards. We look past 400 years ago to what the original peoples of these lands, how they lived. Agriculture was at the very center of what we did. It was sacred in every way. Our consumptions were based on what was good. How we lived in synergy, in symbiosis with the planet around us. We have been pulled and fooled into directions that are no longer in that. And until we can take agency over our own lives, the lives of our family and friends, through our plates, through our forks, through our hands, through our chopsticks, through our spoons, through our bowls, we can't begin to heal. We have to release the pressure. The things that we chase aren't real. We want to look better. We compare ourselves consistently to people on social media platforms who don't like themselves. We know all of this. It's not new. And so what if you took a moment to sit with yourself? What if you took the time to see how it feels, to feel the best you can feel? About 2016, I was having an epic weekend. Very many successful businesses under my belt. I had a great circle of friends who we celebrated with often. We were celebrating a little too hard that night. It's maybe three in the morning and I was with a dear friend of mine, Jacob. Jacob is a Sufi teacher. He is a creator of healthy augmented reality programming. He is a brother, a partner, and he's one of the best friends I've ever known. And he said to me, have you ever wondered how good you could feel? I was like, I feel pretty good right now. He's like, yeah, but what about tomorrow? I was like, yeah, you too. He's like, yeah, I made a choice, but I don't do this very often. He's like, I wonder just how powerful you could feel if you didn't avoid the way that you feel. And those two statements together created a real deep contemplation for me. I wonder how good I could feel. I was so busy running from my emotions and my actual feelings and doing to feel like I was important and impactful in the systems I despised, that I didn't take enough time to rest and realign. 
And from that prompt, I did. And I discovered so much more happiness. And so when we talk about the power of food and the power of rest and the power of contemplation and relaxation and meditation and prayer, whatever that means to you, my ask and my wish and my hope for you is that you will center all of those things. And if you need to give it a timeline, just do. If it's two weeks, if it's a month, and just write down how you feel before and write down how you feel after. And then should the result be positive, <laughs> I want to rig the game. Ask yourself how you can help everybody else feel that way. Because it is a radical and peaceful act to want wellness for others and ourselves. Thank you for being with us again this week. Uh, I always learn so much. And of course, I deeply appreciate your time and intentional listening. And I will catch you next week. Lots of love. Bye.